Disability Arts Online would like to acknowledge the support of the South Bank Centre in hosting this podcast. However, at the time of our event, we also learnt that our associate artist, What's the Big Mysteries installation, Empire's Old Clothes, was cancelled on account of the death of the Queen. And we would like to make it clear we strongly disagree with this decision and would like to share solidarity with the artists whose work was pulled from the Unlimited Festival. Yeah, it was a really inspiring talk. We're finally at a point within the whole of this conversation where we can talk about everybody as being different parts of themselves. Let us be collaborators and not competitors. Welcome to this special Disability Anne podcast recorded live at the Southbank Centre's Unlimited Festival 2022. Disability Arts Online's founding editor, Colin Hambrook, is joined by writer, programmer and creative producer, Tarek El-Mutawakil, multi-award winning poet, playwright and dramaturg, Kate O'Reilly, and policymaker and theatre maker, Deborah Williams, for a lively debate about significant cultural moments that have shifted the narrative over the last decade. This podcast contains some strong language. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to um, this uh, unlimited uh, Legacy 2012 discussion and it's Great to see uh, so many old compadres in the audience as well. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Colin Hambrook. I'm an elder white guy with a hat and glasses, and uh, I'm the founding editor of Disability Arts Online, as well as being a, a disabled artist in my own right. I'm delighted to introduce this discussion. It's uh, 10 years since the Cultural Olympiad, and uh, which was a moment in time when disabled people possibly, arguably, had the highest visibility within arts and culture that we've ever seen. And um, a lot has changed. And so uh, I have my esteemed panelists, who I'm gonna introduce in a moment, uh, to discuss what the last 10 years has, has meant for, for us. As a series of communities that take up one-fifth of the population, we're, we are a significant part of uh, the country and, and have been excluded historically. And um, so 2012 was, was a big moment, I think. It was the first time that we really saw disabled artists and deaf artists being taken seriously in the media, um, their art being taken, being critiqued. And um, it was the first time that disabled artists beyond a, a relatively small community of politically engaged artivists began identifying positively as disabled artists rather than artists who happen to be disabled. Uh, a lot of the art coming out of the disability arts movement in the previous 20 years had been about gaining freedom from the constraints of institutions, from the, the day centres, hospitals and 
um, care institutions that had denied us self-determination and made us invisible from society. I came into disability arts via the survivor movement where our art had largely been about exposing the oppressive nature of the lies about the human condition perpetuated by psychiatry. And 2012 was a moment when disabled people largely asserted that we weren't going back into those institutions, at least not without a fight. In contrast, Channel 4's coverage of the Paralympics dressed disabled people up as this total sci-fi um, supercrip, able to perform superhuman feats, um, which wasn't very helpful, Channel 4. Um, some of my binding memories of that 2012 moment were artists uh, ridiculing the, the superhuman stereotype and uh, Catherine Araniella, who sadly isn't with us anymore, uh, I remember her doing a, a, vi a video uh, where, where she um, dressed up as an athlete, um, weightlifting cotton buds and smoking 20 fags at the same time. Um, and uh, Aaron Williamson, who, who uh, dressed himself from head to toe in gold, um, taking three hours to, to cross the... Um, Royal Festival Hall and um, yeah in contrast 2012 was also a time when the media began propagating scrounger and fraudster narratives placing disabled people in impossible situations and 60% of the deaths during the pandemic sadly were disabled people which might not be a direct result of those media narratives, but it certainly played into the reason why we were so dismissed during the pandemic. And we've seen increasing punitive measures with benefit changes, making it much harder to apply for state benefits. Since 2012, we began to see gatekeepers. On a, on a more positive note, um, as within the performing arts, I think especially, begin to understand the value and authenticity that disabled artists can bring to the arts. Um, we saw the aesthetics of disability being talked about and understood by more mainstream corners of the theatre world. Um, I think that a conversation hope opened up in that time about challenging the gatekeepers and uh, Disability Art Shropshire within the visual arts and, and Accentuate as well. They've begun to develop programs that, that train disabled people as curators, breaking down some of, some of the barriers within the institutions. Um, 20 years ago, there was more of a focus on work that engaged with how the world disabled pe disables people with mobility and sensory issues. And, We've seen much more nuance, I think, in the last 10 years with conversations about neurodiversity beginning to have an impact on disability arts. Disability Arts Online, my organisation, which is kind of my baby, really, uh, you know, in the first 10 years, really struggled to have an influence on the arts sector beyond the, the sort of small community of artists. Um, but in the last 
10 years, we've begun to get much more recognition and having an impact nationally and internationally. And at long last, the conversation about intersectionality and addressing racism within disability arts has finally at least become more vocal. Um, Maria Roshoddy, who's one of a few black disabled CEOs within the arts sector, who's been championing professional practice from blind performers over the last 25 years, she recently commented in an interview with Shades of Noir, we're in funny times at the moment, as in some ways things were much more innocent 20 years ago. Now there's more awareness, but the danger is that this level of awareness can be theoretical and some people don't see their own collusion with racism, ableism and classism. So I would suggest that a legacy from 2012 hopefully still building momentum, has been the will to take that challenge on board and encourage a conversation about unconscious bias and hopefully begin to really change the landscape for the better. Um, I'm going to introduce my lovely panellists now. Um, and um, I'm really, really lucky to have Deborah Williams, OBE, who's writer, producer, and theatre maker, currently working as Chief Executive at Creative Diversity Network, the industry body using data and evidence to transform television in the UK and around the world. We have Tarek Elmu Tawakil, who's an artist, programmer, creative producer, as well as founder and co-artistic director at Marlborough Productions in Brighton, the UK's only performing arts organisation dedicated to intersectional queer arts. And his current public work is entitled Brownton Abbey, which I'm sure Tarek will tell us more about. It's an evolving Afro-futures performance party that centres disabled, queer, trans and intersex people of colour. And last but no least, we have the wonderful Kate O'Reilly, who's a multi-award-winning poet playwright and dramaturg who writes for radio screen and live performance and she was honoured in the 2017-18 International Elliot Hayes Award for Outstanding Achievement in Dramaturgy for her work in alternative dramaturgies informed by a deaf and disability perspective. And so without further ado I'm going to sit down and I'm going to turn to my panellists in turn to talk a bit about um, what the last 10 years has meant for them in terms of their career and um, changes that they've per seen perceived in the arts and media and in culture. Thank so, you. Kate, would you oh, like I'd to... I'd love to, thank you. Um, I'm Kate O'Reilly. I'm a middle-aged white Irish woman with asymmetric brown-greying hair and glasses. And... Um, uh, first of all, I just want to say how incredible it is for us to be here. Um, and secondly, well done for getting this far, because it's been a really hard 10 years. And I don't mean just with the pandemic, when we lost so many, but also the ideological and actual warfare this government has been waging against us. We know about the cuts. We know about the changes in benefit. I don't need to talk about that. We know of the erosion of our 
rights that were so hard won, which also is including the right to protest. And that's one thing we know we do do so well. We protest and campaign really well. And we know a hard winter is ahead of us. And I think that's why we need each other. I think we need our community, we need solidarity, our politics, the interrogation of our possible unconscious biases. We need our culture, our inventiveness, and our strength. And I'm saying all this because I do believe in change and that social justice and reform is possible and it comes when people say no. That is enough. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And one way I think this is provoked is through arts and culture. Ten years ago, I had two commissions as part of the Cultural Olympiad. And I'm grateful for the opportunities and my further relationship with Unlimited. I live in Wales, in a very remote part of Wales, and much of my work is outside the UK. In fact, it's even outside Europe. So some of my experience over the last 10 years may be different from um, other experience of people here, and it may have a particular slant. So although there's still been changes in legislation, I still think we need accountability for social justice. And in Wales, there's a few things that have happened that I'm really proud of, which have been really informative and really important. And one of these things is the Welfare of Future Generations Act, where it has been brought into the law in Wales, where any kind of action, act, or development across Wales has to be interrogated to see its impact on future generations along seven criteria, which also includes disability and inclusivity. That has gone now into law. It's, it's, it's radical. A lot of people are saying outside the UK, where Wales is today, with that kind of attention to detail, they're hoping the rest of the world will be tomorrow. So for me, I think that's really significant and exciting because I'm seeing how that's already beginning to filter down an impact on things in Wales, in the small nation where I live. Um, also with Wales is... Um, the absolutely stunning, marvellous, fabulous Ruth Fabi Nigold, who I'm sure many of us know, she took over Disability Arts Cymru as artistic director and has made such a profound impact in so many ways across the structures, the organisation of Wales um, regarding inclusivity and I was working with her on a, on a manifesto which was talking to the people in Wales who identify as neurodivergent, disabled and deaf. And together we created a manifesto with recommendations of what we needed and what we felt we, we deserved and we demanded to have equity and equal access. We presented it last um, International Day of the Disabled Person um, to the Senate, the Welsh government, who accepted it. Our manifesto is now going to be influencing decisions that are being made in Wales across organisations, venues, schools, education, where we're 
through law, we're able to try and, well, be able to hold people accountable for um, lack of access, lack of equity, and um, excluding us. So these are all very, very new things, but I think they're deeply significant. And as somebody living in Wales, I'm already seeing the impact of that. So the other thing which I just want to say about Wales while I'm banging on about Cymru and Beth, Wales forever, um, is they are from next, well, from actually now, BSL is going to be taught in all the schools in Wales. It is being acknowledged as another official language of Wales and the, the BSL lessons are going to be incorporated along with your Welsh language or your French language, the English language. And so again, that is something that is really exciting people and you know, we're, it's giving us hope. We'll see what happens, but those are some of the cultural developments and political developments that I think are really significant um, to me. But going back then to myself as an artist, I, I identify as a, as a disability artist. Um, part of the work that I've been doing in the last 10 years has actually been going outside, often Europe, but certainly outside the UK, and talking about our practice, talking about the disabled, arts and cultural movement, talking about the, the political movement. Um, more and more places are interested in inclusivity. They're interested in trying to support disabled and deaf and neurodivergent-led work. And um, I have been talking about the aesthetics of access, I've been talking, giving disability equality training, disability awareness training, and so on. But what I've been finding really fascinating is people still are looking to the UK as a beacon. We used to be the beacon. We used to be the world leader. Of course, so much has been eroded. But there are things that perhaps we have experienced that we can pass on, not saying this is the way to do it, because we're not going to go and you know, say this is the only way. Every context, every country needs to find their own way forward. But we don't have to be continually reinventing the wheel. And I've really appreciated that I've been, uh, a lot of my work has been in this kind of context over the last 10 years. What I've also found is people outside Europe who are really trying to encourage and develop um, disability arts and culture are then going, so where's the work? Where are the plays? And I've been very fortunate because I've got a body of work, which I call atypical plays for atypical actors, but also the D monologues, which was something I developed over, well, I'm still in the process of developing, came from um, also an unlimited commission um, back in 2012, where in Taipei, in Korea, in Singapore, in China, and in Hong Kong, my plays are being produced uh, with all disabled and deaf casts, not in every case, but in quite a few, also disabled and deaf-led direction and design. So that has been, again, my experience. It's been exciting because I've seen other places going, we want to learn, we want to do things differently. And, um, and there is a, an opportunity there. If we can 
stop taking our old systemic negative aspects, our racism, our ableism, our ageism, our sexism, our homophobia with us. If we can try and take an opportunity to, to interrogate the structures as they're being potentially reinvented and rebuilt. Um, time will tell. Final thing I'm going to say is um, I think another thing that was very significant, of course, in TV and film was Jack Thorne's um, McTaggart um, talk last year. Again, a lot of TV and film companies reacted. They realized they've been failing us um, in so many ways. There's been lots of initiatives that have been set up saying, oh, we want to have unrepresented voices. We want to open the doors and perhaps remove some of the gatekeepers. Time will tell. I'm not sure whether the selection process for some of those things are fresh, whether they're just going to be the same old, same old. Time will tell. But I also think that there's lots of things to give us hope. And so I just wanted to reflect on my 10 years in that way and pass back now to Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. That um, sounds really hopeful about what's happening in Wales. It's um, quite extraordinary things. And I'd like to move on now to Tarek. Um, you've been doing some amazing work with Brownton Abbey. And um, please tell us about your, what your journey's been like in the last 10 years. Okay, well, uh, I have hearing loss. Um, and in 2012, uh, I didn't, maybe that was just around the time when I started to recognize that I had hearing loss. I didn't know. I, the, I was probably likely to have always had hearing loss, but didn't just kind of like developed a lot of um, techniques to hide that from myself and my family. I didn't even know, basically, I just kind of thought my experience was normal. Uh, so a lot of things that I just thought were particular characteristics um, of myself, but actually were related, came from um, disability. Um, I also didn't know at that time that I had ADHD as well. So in 2012, when there was the Olympics, I would say that I didn't necessarily um, connect with it in that same way. What I think for me, in terms of like recognizing, seeing maybe something to do with myself, up on the screen. I didn't identify as a disabled person. As I, when I got my hearing aids, I still was sort of, oh, I just can't hear that well. Um, just, my ears are a bit rubbish, kind of things is what I would say back in those days. I don't say that anymore. My ears are great, they're really cute. Um, but that was how I felt back in that time. And I think it's been interesting to see that shift. I think maybe both internally and externally as well, how different people have um, felt about being disabled. Um, so I feel for myself my route also partly into recognizing that I have a disability and uh, embracing that and was a, a piece by piece thing first of all you know I moved to Brighton from London um, at, the, at the age of 20 and was to, to kind of like connect with queerness or at least the reason I stayed with Brighton was to it was to connect with um, gay lesbian people um, general queer community and it was quite a few years I don't know eight or nine years or so after living in Brighton that I started to recognize that I needed to be amongst brown gay people that all just people of color in general um, so 
through this kind of process of piecing parts of myself that I felt had to be separated, or, or, this, or society was telling me there's kind of like a place for this part of you, here's your gay part, but that's not your brown part, and here's your brown part, but that's not your gay part. There's a point when I think I started to feel like I could piece things together. And one of those points, well, actually was, I think, when uh, through working in the arts, which I came through from working in a pub, really. There was a theatre above the pub that I worked in, and one year I went, I'm going to take over that theatre. I'm just going to do it, see what happens. Um, and so kind of through that journey, eventually I started to understand the Arts Council, and there was this thing, the Creative Case for Diversity, which I found... Uh, interesting idea, but also a strange title. I was like, are we still making a case for diversity? <laughs> I thought the case was closed, but okay, it's still apparently open. But that, I think, started to make me think, okay, there was at least some conversation about what needs to change, or was some acknowledgement that things are not how they're meant to be. And there's like, like this, the, the funding that is coming from the Arts Council is clearly saying it's meant to be shared. So, um, slowly piecing together, recognising that there was this, um, this creative case for diversity, um, that helped me kind of feel a bit entitled, actually. You know, entitled to equality, which I think before that I hadn't really recognised that we could have an entitlement to, to equality. Maybe I had, but maybe I hadn't recognised it for myself as well, and how I, maybe I wasn't experiencing equality because there were parts of myself that were being separated. So, yeah, through this journey of going, ah, okay, there's, there's, there's supposedly a will um, to see some change and money is meant to be distributed, so why not actually kind of develop a bit of a sense of entitlement and just share that entitlement amongst other people who are also experiencing marginalisation um, and kind of culturally in terms of like a a moment when I saw something that I felt really kind of galvanized me actually wasn't the experience of seeing a show that I really loved and saw myself being represented. I kind of hoped I would because I went to go and see this performance with three black queer uh, artists in it, performers, and I was just like, hooray, this is going to be brilliant. And I went to see the show and I actually found it quite awkward and it turned out it was because it wasn't written by them and it was written by a white queer person. Um, and... <laughs> which actually was kind of like the setup of it. But I thought, okay, this is the setup of it. And so obviously the artists who are in it, are, it's all gonna be safe because everyone, that's, you know, this is how it's meant to be set up. A white person is putting words into black queer people's mouths and that's some tension and what will come out of that. Actually what came out of it was a feeling of like, this is a show for white queers and that they're not thinking that black queers might want to come to see this, even though they're seeing black queers on the stage. It was actually a really awkward experience for myself watching it. I, came, I went with a black queer friend, and then afterwards I remember speaking to the artist. I felt really like, are they okay? You know? And I was, while I was watching the whole thing, I kept telling myself they must be okay. They've got to be okay, surely. They wouldn't be in this situation. And I spoke to them afterwards, and I'm like, we are not okay. They were having a really, really hard time, some of them more than others, but they were really struggling. And that really kind of showed to me that there was definitely, although there was a will for some change, there was definitely still some things that were not happening. And actually the Arts Council was also at that time funding stuff that was quite problematic. Um, and so I, what I have felt has, since those times, I, that, well that galvanised me to make something that was about, was made by and for communities. Um, so that led me to come up with the idea for Brownton Abbey, which is an Afrofuturistic space church themed 
performance party that centres, celebrates and elevates disabled queer people of colour. It's um, a practice in radical exclusion as well as radical inclusion. On the stage there are only black and brown people. It's an invitation for white people maybe to even feel a bit awkward, to feel like, oh, I'm not being represented. It's weird. But that's, that's, you know, to actually try that out for a little while and to embrace that moment. Um, and, to, just to, and to really kind of like m make space to do what we want to do in the way that we want to do it and feel that the words that are coming out of our mouths are purely from ourselves and no one has a handle in what we're actually saying except for ourselves. And for there to be real diversity in that, we're not all the same people. Every single person in Brampton Abbey has their own story to tell. Um, and they're all individual and uniquely ours. So, yeah, there was, I guess that's been my, my journey of um, seeing stuff that I didn't like, being a catalyst for um, wanting to create things that I do want to see in the world. Um, and feeling also that I, because it gave me energy watching this thing that I didn't like. And sometimes anger is a really good energy um, to work with. And it did make me angry, piss me off. And I used that energy to create something that is still um, happening today. We did Brownton Abbey a few weeks ago at the South Bank Centre. I've been uh, supported by Unlimited in the um, since we first came up with the idea of Brownton Abbey. Um, they've been really supportive of it um, and have helped us. We were, I was able to get some funding for a tour, which was amazing, which we didn't get to do because of the COVID, but we made some films instead. Um, but also just it's kind of connected me to feeling uh, I've been on a lot of panels, for example, since since then, recognising having disabilities and all of the parts of me that make myself up being valuable has been really helpful. In the past, I might have felt that if I was to be on a panel, I have to really know everything that I'm going to say, whereas now I'm like, I've got ADHD and actually what makes the, one of the amazing things that I can do sometimes is really feel in the moment. And that means that when I'm talking on a panel, it's coming absolutely from the heart and not from some notes, and hopefully it is engaging to people. And when I have things on notes, it's, it's not engaging. I don't, at least I don't, I'm not engaged with it. And if I'm not engaged, I couldn't expect anybody else to be either. So there was a thing of actually recognizing like the, the parts of me that maybe elsewhere were seen as not useful or whatever, actually, at least within the disability arts, were really embraced. And so similarly with um, you know, being more confident in speaking on panels, um, which has brought me some really great connections. And as a result of speaking on panels, being able to take Brownson Abbey to Canada, for example, from some people that saw me there. But also it's led me to being on a board at Unlimited as well, which in the past I wouldn't have felt confident enough because I would have had a lot of imposter syndrome for sure. Um, and yeah, I think that's been really amazing to be in a space where I feel like I can, like all the parts of me are welcome. And um, yeah, that's, that I guess has been my journey to, also to both myself and to remind other people as well, all the parts of ourselves are not only welcome, but they're glorious, all the things that make us different, the things that we're told make us lesser than or too this, too weird, too that. They're not, they're actually our, that's, that's, that's our magic. And to kind of really lean, in, lean into difference, that's where, I mean, whatever happened that was great, that was from things always being the same. Nothing, nothing. Thank you, that was um, really, um, yeah, really positive. And um, uh, really, it's great that, that the journey, that journey's opened up um, 
for you and f for Brownton Abbey, and uh, um, it's really exciting. Um, and Deborah, we've known each other for a very long time, probably more years than we care to mention, and I've <laughs> always had a huge amount of respect for you, and I kind of see you as someone who keeps on chipping away. You know, um, life's not easy. But you, you, but you, <laughs> you carry on with uh, um, a, a, an amazing wit, <laughs> which can be sharp at times, but is always very welcome. So, can I invite be you careful to careful what you ask for, Colin? <laughs> <laughs> be very careful what you ask for. Um, thank you, and you know, yes, we have known each other since 1992. Um, which is an enormous amount of time. And yes, many, many things have happened. So the last 10 years, um, I celebrate what Channel 4 did with the, with the Olympics, with the Paralympic Games, because they, they made heroes out of Paralympians, which nobody had ever done before. They placed sport at the heart um, of a moment that could have been dreadful. It could have been a truly atrocious um, representation of disabled sports people and Paralympians. So I celebrate Channel 4 for that. And the reason why is the end of the, you know, I'm a, I, I love sport as a child and I wanted to be a, you know, I was headed to Seoul in 88 until they told me that I was broken and they tried to fix me by giving me loads of medication that didn't help. It just meant all the medications were on the banned list. So I had to stop doing sports. Um, so I used to watch sports all the time. And at the end of the Olympics in 2012, London 2012 ended. And at the end, there was a video and there was a pan. They panned off of the, off of the crowd and off of the cauldron and off of everything in the Olympic Park. They went down the tunnel and they panned right and they carried on down the tunnel and you couldn't quite see what was there. And then when they got to the end of the tunnel, you saw the Paralympians, you saw Ellie Simpson, you saw David Weir, you saw Johnny Peacock. None of these people, people really knew at that time unless you knew sport. And they were all standing there at the end of the tunnel. And the headline, the, the strap was, thanks for the warm up. That's why I celebrate Channel 4 <laughs> and what Channel 4 did. And in the last, in the last five years of the work I've come to, I met the person, the individual, um, who said yes to that. Because that's what this is all about. It's about how you make a decision and when you make a decision and why you make a decision. So the non-disabled man, the non-disabled old white man that said yes to that, is someone that I celebrate immensely. Because he didn't have to say yes, he could have said no. What we're going to do is going to have lots of people wearing bibs, dribbling, and we're going to continue the narrative of disability being something wrong with people. Um, obviously, marketing means that it's all spiraled out of control completely and went, down a went downhill. But a lot of disabled artists who were, you know, against in inverted commas, also monetized from it because they were in the videos. 
they were in the, you know, all the videos and all the things that were made. They were actually paid to be in them. So let's not, you know, let's not pretend that that didn't happen. But that was the start of um, what I think has been an incredibly interesting period of cultural recognition and understanding around disability and disabled people. Um, in terms of my career, it <laughs> Unlimited ended my career because all of the money for disabled artists went to Unlimited and if you weren't supported by Unlimited, you weren't validated as a disabled artist in terms of structure and I was never, you know, I was never successful in getting an application, I was never invited to be part of Unlimited, so I didn't, I was not part of Unlimited, so therefore I was invalidated and irrelevant as an artist. Um, but I was inside the Arts Council. Um, I made the decision, I fought hard for the decision for the money to go to disabled people to lead this project. And whilst I regret that as an artist, because I hoped that I would, you know, in some way be involved or in some way um, be able to create under that umbrella, I don't regret it as a, as a policymaker. I think it's important to say that because if it hadn't gone to disabled people, imagine what would have happened, you know. Um, so I think, that that's, I think that's important and I don't regret that decision. And I think it's critical that, you know, that we celebrate and we, we understand what that was. I think when I look back over 10 years, a lot's happened for me personally and professionally. Um, I ended up moving completely into policy. So I was inside Arts Council England, and I, what I ended up doing, I'm inside Arts Council England, I moved to the British Film Institute, and now I'm at the Creative Diversity Network. And what that's meant is I've been able to interpret the Equality Act. So the Act was only two years old, and it was the last piece of legislation that the last Labour government um, made real. You know, it was ushered through on the dying days of Gordon Brown's premiership. Um, you know, it was, I mean, it was literally two days, you know, it was the 30th of October when the acts um, went through Parliament and came into being. And I think that what I've been able to do in the last 10 years is interpret that in a, in a policy, in a way in terms of policy that makes sense as a, you know, and I brought to that as a disabled artist, as a disabled person, as a black woman, as all of the things that leave me out of these industries and these sectors, I've been able to bring all of that to the fore and, and, and make sure that what you have is policy that, is, that makes sense and is implementable and is real and can do things um, for people, for artists, for culture. But my, my biggest interest is about transforming structures and systems. And it is critical for me, um, even though it's sort, of, uh, it sort of happened, it's not planned, it sort of happened, because I had to pivot, because, you know, my life was meant to be an artist. I was meant to be a fantastic actor. I was meant to win Oscars and win awards and be on Broadway and be in the West End. That's what I was meant to do. But, of course, none of that happened because of the way I look, the way I sound and people's perceptions of me. And, and ideas that it doesn't matter if you are talented, um, you don't look right or you don't fit in with, with you know, this idea of norm, but it's of, of not norm, but norm. Um, 
So I've had to pivot all my life. So this is a pivot for me. It's another pivot. 2012 was a pivot for me into what could be, you know, the world that I imagined to be, you know, how I imagined the world to be for me to be successful is what I've been trying to create so that other people don't have to go through the butchery and the barbarism that I've had to go through and continue to go through. It doesn't stop. It hasn't stopped. It is continuous. Um, so I think that's what the last 10 years has been for me, more than anything, has been trying to solidify that, make sense of that. Um, but there's nobody, there's nobody else out there doing it. So what that's also meant is that trial and error is fighting a corner constantly going um people saying to me well you know we've always done it x way I'm like, well, but, well i'm i'm trying to do it y way and we should think about these sorts of things and thinks about these sorts of ways of doing things and i think that that takes its toll it takes its toll on you mentally and emotionally and spiritually you know it hurts my soul to be to have to be doing this work continually but I think it's really, really important. And when I get it right, as in um, I don't have to struggle to make, um, to make change, it's, really, it's a really nice feeling. And actually, I get a really nice feeling. Like the feeling that I got as an actor when I was on stage, when you hear the applause at the end of a play, because that's what this is all about. It's all about applause it's not about anything else let's not pretend it's about anything else it's all about being liked in some way shape or form so it's all it's always about applause so actually when it's when I do sit down when I met that man when I was able to meet that man who made that decision about Channel 4 uh, about the, that Paralympics thing um, and say to him thank you and, and and to say to him why it was important um, it was great to be able to do that. And I, and I, and I, and I like to think that everything that, I, that I'm doing, especially the work I'm doing now, you know, Colin mentioned Jack Thorne's McTaggart. Um, was it Colin or was it Kate? Kate. Um, and they used my data, right? They used the data that we published and we created around disability um, in that, in that McTaggart and in the work that they've done since. They've used our data, they've used the evidence that we've generated around what television looks like in terms of production, in terms of dis disabled representation on and off screen. They've used that and people, are, people are, uh, are, are engaging in a way. So that's what, you know, trying to create stuff that people can use in the real world is, I guess is my last 10 years and I think that that is um, it's interesting to watch and then that goes around the world so there are ripple effects around the world for that you know the work I did at the British Film Institute you know I was there for three days a week on a 12-month contract it ended after nine months because I got um, chronically ill and had to, had to have emergency surgery because I almost died but those that you know I can't even calculate it three days a week for nine months 
I managed to design a system that the Oscars now use, that the BFI use, that BAFTA uses, that Australian screen industries use. The, you know, um, everybody's trying to replicate and design their own versions. You know, in June, I went to Germany and spoke to the Bavarian government about how, what sort of systems that they can create to monitor and look at diversity, to measure diversity and diversity demographics across their screen industries. So I'm doing that now. So I don't have a career as an artist. I'm not an actor. Um, I've never been part of Unlimited, but I'm doing this other stuff over here that might be useful to some people at some time eventually. I can relate to that on the level that, you know, I should have been a visual artist and a poet and a playwright and, uh, and s similarly, I've, I've kind of, thought what what can I do to change the landscape and and that's that's where I set up Disability Arts Online as a as a space for mm. networking and discussing and, and thinking about how how we change the structures and yeah. how we move things forward in a way that makes the world more equitable. No, absolutely, and I think it's and then what I think is really important is that once you see it, you know, th there's a saying: you never show people how you make laws and sausages. You know, the, people always quote that, and I'm like, yeah, you do, because actually, when you make, you know, people wouldn't eat sausages if they really knew how they were made. Um, they wouldn't, and and you wouldn't respect the laws if you really knew how they made and the people that make them. You know, the people in these in these spaces who create these structures and these systems they are not as bright or as intelligent or as sophisticated as we are led to believe. That is why the systems and structures can be torn down, can be removed really quickly, but so many people fall into the trap of, oh, well, I've got to do it this way, otherwise I'm not going to get that. And that's the, you know, that's the, that's the stuff that really needs breaking, is, is people accepting that um, how things have always been done and what happens now should just carry on yeah, it's I it's agree. so simple i mean you know yeah. I, I spend you know i work with you know everybody from the director general at the bbc to the chief executive of channel 4 you know itv sky paramount you know warner brothers i work with all these people and they you know, some of them are very nice people some of them aren't because people are nice and some aren't but essentially you sit down and you talk to them and you present them with something different and you just, you make the case for it and change can happen and it does happen. And I think it's really important to hold on to that. Absolutely. Does that resonate for you at all, Tarek? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm a big believer in pushing for change. So yeah, any, any opportunity where you can kind of like get into a crack and start to prise it open, I think we should, we should take that opportunity um, particularly if you're like advocating for your, I don't know, like a marginalised person, being, creature, you know, part of, you know, community, um, and particularly if it's also from your, of your, of your own, you know, we know, we know ourselves the best. And when people do these things for, on, on our behalf, that definitely doesn't normally work that well. It works best when we do these things for ourselves. So. Just a real reminder, like of your of your own power as well. I think previously I, I didn't feel like I had any any power really, um, and it's been it's been really a 
good journey for me to to feel more empowered and to remind other people as well like there's no point in me having just more power on my own i don't that's i want it all i want it all i want everyone in the room to feel empowered you know and and, and to and to speak up um yeah for their for their individual rights for their for their humanity for their joy that's been a been a beautiful thing to recognize like um the the power of joy so much of the time i think previously um, the experience of being a marginalised person has been kind of one that's meant to be sad, and you only get and you only get stuff if you really like lean into like how tragic things are. And it's been nice to move away from that and go. Actually, there's some really amazing things about my my experience, and I can share some of that with you if, if you like as well. It'll be a privilege for you to to receive that. And, and actually, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a tragic life <laughs> and talking about that. Do you know what I mean? There isn't, you know, but there are ways of doing that. I mean, you know, not everything has to be slitting your wrists and going, woe is me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I want to make a piece of theatre that has been with me for, for a long period of time. And I want to make a musical piece of theatre but everyone everyone looks at me as if to say but surely you can't talk about disability in a musical I'm like the hell I can't but of course the notion is disability is sad it's terrible it's tragic it's awful it's traumatic you can't you know you can't put people through that people don't want to see that and I'm like trust me I write a show about disability and it's a musical and it'll be on the stage in the West End because it's not about the disability, it's about the quality of the work that you're producing, right? It's about your collaborators, it's about how you tell story, it's about how you tell narrative, it's about how you engage an audience. That's, you know, I'm an artist. All the rest of it is stuff, is all socially constructed stuff. What I am born with is creativity and art and that's what's important. And that's what I think gets lost and gets missed in so much of this debate and conversation is that, you, you, you know, performative disability is what gets you funded, is what gets you supported, is what gets you seen, because that's, a narr that's somebody else's narrative and understanding of what it is. You know, as you said, you know, those doing it for and to... That's how they think it is, you know. But I think you can also, I mean, just from my perspective as a, as a playwright, I've made a career out of answering back to the negative representations, the limited representations of difference, particularly like in the Western theatrical canon, but also, you know, kind of outside that. So there is also that space of, if you're clever, that's the thing, is about, it's about being able to subvert things, to take things and subvert and answer back and challenge things. And, um, you know, so a lot of the work that I've been doing in the last few years, you know, earlier this year, myself and Sarah Beer were in um, Spain at the National Theatre there in Madrid with Richard III Redux, which is a kind of crip feminist version answering back to Shakespeare's Richard III. And what's exciting me again, though, is that other places, maybe not here in the UK, but other places outside the UK, in Europe and beyond, are really intrigued by this. And they want to kind of go, what are you up to? What are you doing? What is different? What is alternative? And, um, and I think, you know, when I talk to a lot of my friends who are also artists, who's, who a lot of their work is perhaps based particularly in England or the UK, 
I think it can be a very negative um, feeling sometimes. They feel disempowered. And I just like to sometimes say we have to look outside this island and, you know, that the, there is interest, there are opportunities to tell different stories in different ways with different processes. And by doing that, I think we can start interrogating and challenging these structures, the problematic structures that Deborah was talking about as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I think... Yeah, change possible. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we have to be clever, don't we? We have to be inventive. We've got and we've got to be together. I think we need each other for that inventiveness. We need each other and we need all the different kinds of difference to pull together to recognize that all of our struggles are actually connected. I think there's something uh, uh, I like to be remind well, we're often reminded about how uh, capitalism it does a good job of separating us, making us feel like we are not worthy. Um, if, you, if you're not able to work, then you're not worthy, apparently. Um, or if work structures don't make space for you, then you're not worthy. And then that's so disempowering. And then you just live your life feeling like you're not a worthy human being. And what a tragic state of affairs. Like, how has that been done to us? What trick? What, who has done that trick to us? Capitalism. And, and we need to, you know, actually it's really helpful being amongst other people like ourselves to remind each other we are worthy, so worthy. It's gorgeous when we remember that as well. What you can then, what then you can then ask for or just take. Just take it. <laughs> just take it. <laughs> On that wonderful note, <laughs> big thank you to, to Deborah Williams to Tarek El-Mutakawil and to Kate O'Reilly. It's been a fantastic conversation. And um, I would also like to thank the South Bank Centre for hosting us. And big thank you to Graham for recording us and to Nikki uh, and Andrew. Thank you for um, this BSL. And can I say thank you to Colin? Thank you for that great introduction and for sharing that so beautifully. Thank you, Colin Hamburg. Thank you, everyone. Finally, let's hear some audience reaction. My name's Anders. I am a support access mentor. I just loved a lot of the sentiments expressed about pushing for change, about recognising that we are worthy and that our various differences bring us together and can connect us and unite us. I'm Liz Porter. I work in um, various arts and culture and heritage stuff. I'd like to see that conversation develop and that we start really thinking about ourselves as individual parts of ourselves, but actually thinking about how we have those conversations to make sure that we don't lose the conversations that have happened around aesthetic access, how we really look at the conversations about lived experience and how that's brought into arts and um, continues to move forward. I'm Sagar from Nepal. I work as a consultant to artists and art group to make their performances, their work accessible to people with disabilities. Well, I've been in this sector for more than 10 years, but we have just started moving to arts because art, disability in arts is pretty new. 
So my name is Nujat Ladder. I am from Kathmandu, Nepal, and I work at the British Council uh, in the arts team. So we, uh, in South Asia, we uh, actually have a disability arts program that the British Council has started. And in, in Nepal and Kathmandu, we started having this conversation since 2019, where we started um, interacting with disability stakeholders as well as artists as to how we could uh, create a more inclusive sector. Um, but uh, from from how it is there, it's uh, 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 disabled artists are really in the professional realm. I mean, are really non non-existent. There isn't uh, really a scene. So uh, that's what we've been trying to support with and foster. And you spoke with Sagar just now. He is an active activist in the scene, and he's also working with artists as well as uh, disabled stakeholders. And uh, of course, it'll take some time for us. Uh, to uh, you know, reach a level where there are profess uh, professionally working disabled artists in Nepal, but we're trying to get there, and it's not just about us uh, creating disability-focused activities, but uh, targeting um, and talking about inclusion as a whole, and and including uh, disabled stakeholders as well as artists within all the programmings that we create. I'm Trish Wheatley, and I'm the CEO of Disability Arts Online. I think the main thing on my mind um, when I'm thinking about the development of Disability Arts Online is really just to make sure that we are listening to the artists that we work with and responding to their needs. Uh, so we develop programs from what people want and need at the time and make sure that we are influencing the trends that happen but also responding to trends so so we yeah we're a really responsive organization but we also want to drive the change that needs to happen to make sure that there are less barriers in in the arts and cultural sector and um, yeah to make sure that more artists are accessing the right spaces to create and show their work uh, I, I'm, a, I'm originally from Japan and uh, my name is Naoto I'm a writer and a photographer and then so I've been writing about a uh, social issue about people with disability. The, today's event was great, totally understand a great, great event. And I, I'd like to say thank you for all the, all the guests and uh, the South Bank staff. Thank you. <laughs>and associate producer Amy Leach about how this regional producing theatre continues to lead the way in access and inclusion for people with disabilities.